Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Today I am joined by Rabbi Sharon Brous, the Rabbi of Ikar. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Sharon and I know each other because we are, I guess, technically housemates in the Shalhevet building. Uh, Sharon and Ikar are our beloved uh, partners and tenants using our building when we're not using it um, on Shabbatot and Chagim here at Shalhevet. It was actually a pretty interesting, uh, for me, an awesome, uh, it has been an awesome experience in the sharing economy. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know, everyone thinks about Uber Mm -hmm. and Airbnb, but I'm into shul and Jewish uh, facility sharing. So I don't know. We have to come up with a catchy name for our business. I don't know. Any ideas? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know if I've mentioned lately how grateful I am and for that for that uh, for your visionary uh, ability to share with us. And it actually feels to me exactly the way Jewish communal resources should be used. So I just absolutely love that the place that we're davening in on Shabbos is is full of uh, is full of Jewish kids playing basketball and learning Torah during the week. So. Love it. Yeah. Incredible. And and it was not uh it was it was a process that was really we were I'm very grateful to some Roshe Yeshiva at Yeshiva University who helped us figure out how to do it that you know worked for us and you were able to figure out how to do it in a way that works for you but it's it's yes. been an awesome experience and I wish more Jewish communities would maybe follow suit it would yes. be pretty awesome. So Okay. First, just a couple questions. I know you pretty well, but our <laughs> listeners don't, Sharon. So LA, very hip coffee town here. Mm. Where do you go for your cup of joe when you need the good the good one? Not the strong jolt, but like the really refined cup. I, you know what? I, um, I start my day with my Nespresso, which was mm-hmm. maybe the second best birthday present I ever got my husband and mm-hmm. myself. Are you <laughs> so. going to tell us the first or... <laughs> <laughs> I you told know, you this you is going to be a hard-hitting... This is hard-hitting. Do you know the whole huge thing, this like Danish... Um, it's like a lifestyle thing where you're... It's all about coziness and comfort and you should always have a really good blanket and always have a candle burning and a fire burning in the fireplace. And so we have... like We got these amazing blankets and it's been... It's had this transformative effect on the whole family. Like really? everybody's closer as a result. <laughs> that wow. was the best gift. The second best was the Nespresso. That's awesome. So, so you I, start off with an espresso. Take any yes, cream in it? Any like creamer, French do, vanilla? Or you I know do you? the soy creamer, I gotta okay. say. Are you yes. a soy, that's a that's a thing. I'm a little vegan-ish. Okay. So yes. Yeah. I actually I was <laughs> a meatarian. I don't know if that's a word, but before when so. I was in Houston <laughs> and when I moved here, someone's like, You've gotta try this vegan Thai place. And I'm like, what? And now, now I'm in love with it. It's I just think it awesome, just delicious. Down. What? Are you talking about Boulogne? No, no, oh. no, no. The uh, Thai Bodhi on... Uh, oh, Bodhi Thai. I'm like, yeah. oh, Bodhi Thai, sorry. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know the grammatically correct way to pronounce Bodhi. Um, there are some good vegan places here okay. in LA. So. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay, tell, uh, share with me, like, what's a book, if you were going to recommend one book? Mm, what's that I book? I just read the most gorgeous novel I have encountered in many, many years. I'm listening um, with bated breath. <laughs> it's called Homegoing. Homegoing? By a woman named Yagiasi. She actually wrote this book when she was 25 or 26 years old, and it is absolutely breathtaking. Such a gift. Tell me, what in, in two sentences, what, what is it about? She She's Ghanaian, and um, she tracks 
a family history um, starting in Ghana, 10 generations. It's two sisters, one sister that ends up staying in Ghana and one that um, through the slave trade is brought to the United States. And generationally, you see how much death and destruction came to both continents through the horrors of the slave trade. And it's ultimately the most beautiful and redemptive novel. It's it's a it's stories that we have never heard before and absolutely stunningly woven together. It is breathtakingly beautiful. Wow. And does it have a happy ending? I like happy endings, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. You're you not telling to, me. I told you it was a redemptive okay, novel, but right. you have to read it. Okay. You have to read it. Okay, maybe around Pesach time. It sounds like a good uh, Pesach. Today. Read it today. Okay. Amazon will get it to you in an hour. I'm aware. So, yeah. <laughs> no, there's, I want my stuff now. By the way, whatever. I won't, I won't say other ways of, there's more deliveries out there that, that are great. Okay, last fun <laughs> question, Sharon. I know... Um, you probably travel quite a bit in your in your job. I actually was once on a flight with Rabbi Browse, and she was upgraded to first class, and I was sitting back in coach. No, I think uh, you got the upgrade. Oh, is that how the story I went? I think so, yes. You think so? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Huh. And you felt guilty. I did feel guilty. That's, That's right. what happened. Yeah, we were, uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> but we were, uh, yeah, so you, I, I know you travel. Um, what is the travel item you, you need to take? What is the thing oh, you- Oh, wow. Really? Mm-hmm. You got you stumped me. <laughs> That's okay. Take um, your time. Yeah, I well, I have to have four books with me on any flight. No Kindle. Just in case. No, I, you know what? I just can't really do the Kindle because I like to touch pages uh-huh. in books, and I le- and I'm a very active reader. I like I'm constantly underlining and highlighting, and um, so I, I need to have books, and I have to have four in case. I finished two and then I don't like one, so I have to have the fourth. Got so it. I really, even though I'm going to mostly sit on a plane going, doing work and going through email, there's right. the takeoff and landing, so I have to have at least For four. sure. They make you put your laptop away. Yes. It's totally, I did, yes. I, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> that Having four books, that joke is like, right, the, the people are on the island and they have two shoals, one I go to, one I don't go to. <laughs> so I feel like those are, you need those books. Okay. From the silly to a little bit more um, serious. Here we go. I, I remember. No, no, no. This is going to be fun. I remember, and and I, for me, it was really moving. I remember when we first met, uh, maybe four or five years ago, uh, and you shared with me the story of how you became a rabbi. I'd love for the listeners to hear that. You had the long or short? I'll give you the short. Give us the short version. People. <laughs> okay. So I. Um, I grew up with a very strong sense of Jewish identity, but but essentially Jewishly illiterate, functionally illiterate, in the sense that there was no halachic universe and no real, no textual universe that I was familiar with at all. But I did have a strong sense of connection to Jew, to the Jewish people and to Jewish values and Jewish identity. Um, and when I got to college, a college that I in part chose because there was a very strong Jewish community there, I encountered for the first time from Jews. And it was astonishing to me. And I thought, oh, my people. And then I quickly realized that I wasn't seen as one of their people. Um, I didn't know when to stand up and when to sit down. I always entered the room at the moment, you know, in Lachadodi when everybody turns to the door. I do that um, also. So you, that's, yeah? I, I walk in all the time on that moment, but yes. I, I was striking up conversations, you know, after washing, before mozi. I mean, I sort of did everything wrong. And 
Um, and I once made the horrific mistake in college of bringing an unhexured bottle of salad dressing to mm-hmm. a Shabbos dinner I was invited to, which was, you know, a moment of great shame and tremendous horror for my host who screamed and wrapped her hand in a dish towel and threw the bottle out into the dorm hallway and said, you totally trafed up my kitchen. And I said, I don't know what that means. And Did she you- said, it's unhexured. And I said, I don't know what that means. <laughs> And Did you go to college in B'nai Brock or something <laughs> like that? Where were you in college? It was New York City, actually. Wow. Um, okay. And, you know, and then realized many years later that you can't actually trafe up a countertop by bringing a sealed bottle into the room. But that didn't matter to her. And so, you know, sort of fled Judaism for a while. And about a year later, I was very immersed in life in New York City and studying African-American history and culture and Eastern religion. And then there was a pigua. There was a terrorist attack Um in Buenos Aires at the Israeli embassy. I don't know if I ever, if I shared this piece of the story with you. And I was this, you know, radical empath. Like I would wake up in the morning and just cry reading the paper. And I read this story and it hit me differently than any other tragedy that I was, that I would read about in the paper. It felt like it was my family. And I was so astonished because I was a universalist, you know, I'm a Jew, but really I'm a, I'm a member of the human people. And I am, um, I I was dev- I was wrecked. And so I went to this vigil on the steps at Columbia, just a gathering to share sadness after this attack and um and everyone was talking and I thought I had this mo- this epiphany. I am I'm a cultural Jew. I live in Manhattan. I read the New Yorker. I drink coffee. And um and then and I thought like these are my people. I'm just not I'm not ever going to go to a Shabbos dinner again. And then they started to sing Hatikva. And I was the only person there who didn't know that there were words to Hatikva. <laughs> and the only person who wasn't singing, I remember burying my head in my turtleneck sweater and just crying. And I was so, I was so upset. So I start, I realized I had to start to learn. And I actually got a list um, of every single synagogue in New York City from the boy who lived across the hall's mother. Um, and that boy is now my husband. And that mother is now my mother-in-law. And she hand wrote every shul in New York. And I, David and I would go every single Friday night into one shul after another. And I would leave crying from every single one because they were so alienating. I didn't understand Hebrew. Nobody said hello when we walked in. Um, we felt like outsiders and it it was my own story I was trying to uncover and I couldn't find a way in. And after about 30 weeks and we're in college and we should be going to bars and, you know, frat parties, but we're going to shul every Friday night. And, um, after many, many weeks, um, we went to B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side and I walked in and the rabbis were preaching about HIV AIDS and hate how hatred and fear were going to prevent us from dealing with this disease responsibly. And Rabbi Marshall Meyer said, mark my words, this will be a global pandemic and tens of millions of young people will die. And it's because we're afraid of gay people and we don't wanna talk about what what kind of resources are gonna be necessary to combat this disease. And then everyone started to sing and dance. And I was, and I was completely transformed. And I, I really, I, I turned to David and I said, we have to go to Israel. I have to learn, like, this is the kind of Jew I want to be in the world. And we literally, in the next semester, we were, you know, on a plane and went to Jerusalem to study. And um, I know you asked for the short version and here I am with the shaggy dog, but I'll just, let me go, I'll close really quickly. But we went to study in Yerushalayim and uh, at Hebrew University and I had a chavruta who was a Haredi woman who was so kind and lovely and I was kind of falling in love with her life. Um, but I was a feminist and I was a human rights activist and I was a vegetarian and like, how did these things m- meld? And finally, uh, they planned an Aish discovery weekend for us. 
uh, for me and my chevre and my friends to come and learn. And I went and we're in the old city and it's magical. And like my first Shabbos in the old city and absolutely beautiful. And I'm completely taken by the whole story. And I'm like, I'm going to, this is it. I'm in. And, um, and then on the last day on Sunday, they do this slide show where they prove God's existence by cross-checking Treblinka with Himmler and Eichmann in the Torah. And I realized I they were trying to prove to me that God existed through their codes, but I didn't need that because I felt it in my heart. And I never contemplated faith and God. And I realized that the people I admired most in the world were were faith. They were they were people who acted in the world from their faith. It was King. It was Gandhi. The great agents of social change were all compelled by a by a faith narrative. They believed the world could be different than it was. And I burst into tears again. And the lights went up. And like ten Haredi guys surrounded me. And they said, "What do you think? What do you think?" And I said, "I'm going to be a rabbi." <laughs> and um, and these guys just went pale. <clears throat> and I felt so bad. But you know. And then one of them said. You should be a rabbitson. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to marry a rabbi. I want to be a rabbi. And which made total sense to me. And then um, my age story ends there. They were very lovely and they helped to bring me to my life as it is. And um, and from there I had to like start to really learn the words to Kiddush because I was really learning everything as a grown-up, um, as a 19, 20-year-old from from scratch. I mean, it was a total clean slate for me. So it was an incredible learning journey that basically started in my young adulthood. Pretty amazing. I assume Aisha Torah has not honored you at a banquet at this you point. You know what? They, I, I once heard um, that they were using my story, they were sharing my story to demonstrate how pluralistic they are, which right. is lovely. Because even Rabbi Sharon Brous found her way through Aish. And Listen, there's something beautiful <laughs> about that. And I, I, it was interesting when you were saying that you walked into B'nai Jeshrin, I was thinking, you know, of course, I'm, I'm wearing my Orthodox rabbi hat in this discussion a little bit and thinking, gosh, why why can't we figure out how to welcome people when they walk in and, mm. and help them because they don't know the Hebrew words. And of course, and I know there are shuls that do. There are Orthodox communities that are really welcoming and warm. And I was thinking, how not that too bad, but I wonder how different, like, would your life be any mm. different if you walked into a, you know, a modern Orthodox shul and they welcomed you and you went to a beginner, or, you know, some, it was warm and they, and they didn't make you feel like an outsider. And then you mentioned your Haredi Chavruta at yes. Hebrew U. And I was like, it's amazing. Like you had these experiences, yes. beautiful experiences with with ultra orthodoxy or right wing orthodoxy, but it, it didn't fill all of your needs. It sort of sparked right. something, but it wasn't. You know, it, it couldn't take you to the full fulfillment of your of who you are. Right, and I, I mean, I really did struggle um, with how how I could have a voice in my own Jewish journey as a as a woman. I mean, given that I started my learning at at nineteen or twenty when I already had a voice in the world, how do you how do you then build a Jewish identity that can honor who you are as a person already? And so, I mean, I I really I sat and I learned Gemara that year for the first time at Hebrew U with some incredible teachers. And I just, I, I, I was fa but simultaneously falling in love with these rabbis who were becoming my daily companions, you know, like arguing with Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan and, and fighting with Rabbi Eliezer every day of the week. And then, you know, and, and then, and then I realized, um, and Rabbi Yoshua, and I realized like my voice was missing from this conversation. And there was one particular sugi I remember learning really early on where they were talking about sexual assault and what the damages, uh, what the damages ought to be for sexual assault. And it was a group of men sitting in the Beit Midrash 
trying to understand what the experience was for a woman who was a survivor of rape. And I realized like we are bereft because women's voices have been absent from this conversation. And I am being called right now to add my voice. And if I can't, I would have studied at YU or Chovave. I mean, Chovave did not exist at this moment, but it would have been the perfect place for me to study given my, you know, my ideology and my theology and my approach. But if they had, if they would have had me, I was not interested in biblical criticism. I was not interested in, I wanted to, I wanted to learn Torah. Um, but I wanted to learn it in a way where I could add to, to the layers of, uh, to the chorus of Jewish voices that had contributed to this conversation over generations. And there was there was not a way that I could see at that time for me to do that um, in the in the Orthodox space. It's so interesting because now there's been such a blossoming and a recognition, like you give the example of the a Gemara, and it's full of men who are discussing what the psak is or how to you know figure out the the feeling of sexual assault for a woman. So in you know Nishmat. This uh, mm-hmm. w- uh, institute that trains women to be yoetzer halacha, um, and my wife is a full disclosure. My wife is part of that. Um, it's amazing, and Rabbi Nid Hankin has made a very clear and compelling case. Like, why would? We have a man answering a woman's right. questions around any of these issues, right. um, whether it's fertility or, you know, intimate issues. Uh, sure, if you want to have some people involved who are helping at a 30,000 foot level, but where are the women's voices in this? And now, obviously, Yeshivat Maharat is around, and mm-hmm. even YU is now graduating women in far more significant roles. The OU is grappling with this, uh, and, you know, women's leadership. Did you ever meet any resistance as a female clergy member in the non-Orthodox world? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. It's not... Because <laughs> I think the Orthodox people, myself included, I'll speak for myself, not the whole Orthodox world, because um, that would be silly, um, <laughs> assume that in the non-Orthodox world, of course, everybody is pro, you know, women, uh, clergy and pro LGBT and pro, I, I don't know what, you yeah. know, meaning like there's an assumption that it's monolithic in the non-Orthodox world. No, it's surely not. And I mean, I think it's becoming more accepted now than it was when I was in school. My 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 year, when the year I was ordained, there were 180 women rabbis um, in the conservative movement. And so it's still very, very rare. Um, there's still many shoals that won't hire women. I mean, I can also tell you, I remember the first Devar Torah I gave in which no man came over and talked to me about my legs or my hair or my skirt. Or in other words, like the presumption is that a woman in front of us is to be looked at and not listened to. And that's true in, in the non-Orthodox world as much as it is in the Orthodox world. And so there's a there's a, a growing that our community is doing right now. Just, I mean, still look at American politics. I mean, we the fact that we have not yet had a woman president and that so many people in this country cannot wrap their heads around the the idea of real women's leadership is, um, I think is, is pretty significant for us. So, um, you know, I, I, in, in building my own community, um, we have had the incredible privilege of being able to establish our own culture here. And, you know, we have lots of little Jews running around now who are like, can boys be rabbis too? (laughs) So (laughs) that happens, but, um, but outside in the, in, you know, in the big, bad Jewish world out there, it's, uh, it's still it's still pretty rare. You still have to um, kind of fight for your voice to be heard. Um, for many years, I had to. I like someone told me one year when you know early on in my rabbinate. Oh, when um, I heard you give your bat mitzvah devar Torah, it was so beautiful, and I was like, No, you didn't hear me give my bat mitzvah. <laughs> that I'm a rabbi. Like that was me talking. As a, I'm not just a, like a little girl who you hear up there. So. 
it's a, you know, it's a, we're, we're in a, a learning moment, yeah. our whole community, I think. Um, absolutely. If it's comforting, by the way, my daughter asks me if boys are allowed to make hamotzi because Atara makes the mozi <laughs> in our house. So that's very comforting. Um, and Thank comforting. <laughs> I think a lot of the people who can't wrap their heads around a woman being president would feel excited about Nikki Haley considering a run. What do you think about Nikki? I, I would imagine you might be excited about a Nikki Haley run more so than I would, perhaps. I don't know. I don't want to assume your politics, <laughs> Sharon. But yeah, um, I, I, I think she she speaks incredibly eloquently and with with. Um, yeah, we, we could talk about it. Let's let's start the challenging part of the podcast. Oh, now. OK. All right. Okay. Isn't our time up? <laughs> <laughs>